Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. My name is Luigi Tomba and I'm the director of the China Studies Centre at this university, at the University of Sydney. Uh, and it's, uh, a, it's a privilege and it's a pleasure to welcome all of you to uh, one more of our events, the events that the China Studies Centre is organising with uh, uh, Sydney Ideas. And uh, before I start, I just want to acknowledge uh, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the uh, traditional owners of the land where we're meeting today, and pay my respect to its elders, past and present. Uh, it's a particular privilege for me to be able to uh, introduce to you the speaker tonight, Professor Willie Lum. Uh, Willie has a, a very distinguished and diverse career um, and is certainly one of the most respected observers of China's elite politics. So he's currently an adjunct professor in the Center of China Studies and the Department of History in the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Uh, university is very close to, our, to us, to our university and to our hearts. Um, and he's also a senior fellow at the Jamestown Foundation uh, in Washington, D.C., in the United States. Uh, but he also has a very long and very important ex- experience as a journalist since uh, he used to work for uh, such uh, news outlet as Asia Week, the South China Morning Post, and CNN. And he's been a, a correspondent from Beijing uh, in the late 80s, 19. 19- 86 to 89, and this is when I basically started to follow Willie's work, and it's probably revealing my age more than his, uh, and I was a young student, and uh, when I first went to China at the end of the 80s, uh, the work that Willie produced was very important to me, and I've always considered him simply as one of the most astute observers uh, of uh, the Chinese political system, and his capacity over the years has been that of bringing clarity to what many of us considered as a very murky and very difficult to understand political system and an impenetrable uh, uh, power machine. So so I've I've often turned to Willie many, many books on on China uh, and on China's different generations of leaders uh, that have characterized his work. And I just just want to mention a couple of things that uh, Willie's done recently. One is... uh, uh, this book called China's, China's Politics in the Era of Xi Jinping, which is something, something we will hear uh, something about today, uh, and is published by Routledge in 2015. And so it's on the first five years in the first, in the first initial period of Xi Jinping. And more recently, just a month ago, uh, Willie uh, Willi, uh, mentioned to me that uh, he's published um, an edited volume for uh, Routledge called The Handbook, of Chinese Communist Party, which is a collective oeuvre that uh, he's edited and I'm sure is going to have a, a very large number of insights that all of us would like to, uh, to um, uh, follow. So Willie's uh, um, presentation today is particularly topical, it's particularly timely because uh, it happens right after the end of the 19th uh, uh, Party Congress in Beijing and uh, he is going to... Uh, enlighten us with uh, some of his uh, ideas, and the title is uh, The 19th Party Congress, What Will Xi Jinping Use His Power For? Uh, a question that I'm sure many of us have already asked themselves. Um, so I'm sure that there will be plenty of questions in the uh, Q&A after, after the lecture, 
And uh, without further ado, please, Willie, thank you. Well, good evening. Um, well, thank you, Chairman, for a very uh, generous introduction. And um, I would like to especially thank the, uh, the China Center and the uh, Senior Ideas for inviting me to come in this beautiful uh, evening. And also, uh, this is a very beautiful lecture hall. Um, um, I, I was struck by the fact that uh, this is a uh, geological uh, lecture hall and um, what I'm doing is also looking at the, uh, maybe not so much the geological history of the Communist Party, but at least how the, the Communist Party has evolved over the past um, 100 odd years. Um, I would also like to thank the advisors, uh, to, to thank the organizers, particularly for their uh, crystal ball um, gazing uh, capacities, because I think um, while inviting me, they correctly uh, projected the, the timing of the 19th Party Congress. And also uh, today, uh, this is a very auspicious day for both um, the US, uh, China, and Asia, because Donald Trump uh, is uh, visiting China today. And um, it, was, it was also very interesting, because the Chinese um, who, who think that uh, uh, President Trump likes flattery, uh, particularly laid on a, a special banquet uh, within the Forbidden City, which, uh, to my memory, uh, had not been done before, or at least not uh, during the Cultural Revolution, had a visiting uh, head of state been um, given this um, um, treatment within the Forbidden City. However, I must point to an interesting um, ironic twist, and that is uh, during the Qing Dynasty, the Forbidden City was also the place where uh, Qing emperors received representatives of vassal states uh, <laughs> who uh, presented uh, valuable gifts uh, and who uh, acknowledged uh, the Middle Kingdom's um, sovereignty over all the uh, vassal states around China. So there, there seems to be a double meaning in this uh, super special treatment, which the Chinese called, which they had, uh, they will be according uh, President Trump. Well, um, well, China is a um, universal topic, so uh, I don't pretend to be able to uh, exhaust this universe of discourse uh, within uh, just one short hour. But uh, there are questions about China's uh, policy towards North Korea, towards the U.S. and um, more closer to home where I live, because I, I teach at Chinese University of Hong Kong. Uh, questions about Taiwan, about uh, obviously uh, China-Hong Kong policy, which we could tackle uh, during the Q&A period. But first of all, um, let me just spend about uh, 20 minutes on something which is very important, and that is what took place during the 19th Party Congress. Well. Um, the Party Congress, of course, is held once every five years. So um, it's kind of a truism in uh, political science that uh, there are no elections in China. And uh, many uh, observers have defined uh, Chinese-style elections as uh, elections where uh, the results are known even before the ballots are cast. Okay. Uh, 
but it is wrong. It is wrong. Okay, this 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 conception is wrong because uh, Deng Xiaoping in 1979 did introduce uh, Willish elections, one person one vote elections at the lowest stratum of the grassroots. That means the the Chun, the Willish level, and um, according to my uh, close friends in Beijing at that time, uh, because I was based, uh, I spent three years living and working in Beijing in the 80s. Uh, according to my trusted uh, uh, sources, at that time, Deng Xiaoping um, was debating within himself as to whether he should follow the suggestions of his liberal advisors. That means um, every five to 10 years, they, they should elevate the elections from the village level and then up to uh, town and township level and subsequently to the county level uh, to the municipal level, uh, to the provincial level, and eventually, perhaps uh, 30, 40 years later, uh, to the national level. Uh, unfortunately, um, what uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, very uh, boldly, uh, uh, th those reforms he boldly introduced in the early uh, 80s, uh, have, most of them have not panned out, okay? Uh, well, we, we could blame it on the uh, Tiananmen Square incident, of course, but uh, there are also other reasons. And um, as uh, recent Chinese history has evolved towards uh, the, the current period, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, we have seen, at least from one perspective, that those um, institutional and political reforms which Deng Xiaoping painstakingly, painstakingly put together in the early 80s, many of them have been eroded, repudiated, and otherwise uh, stood on the head. By, by Xi Jinping, okay? So Xi Jinping is definitely a different kind of ruler uh, compared to Deng Xiaoping. Uh, in my opinion, Xi Jinping is a very much a disciple of Mao Zedong rather than uh, Deng Xiaoping. So uh, we will uh, discuss this as, as we go along. So first of all, uh, the, the 90 Party Congress, well, uh, if you were asked me to, to, to pick one image uh, summarizing the um, results of the Party Congress, uh, it, it will be this one, okay? This one or, or this one. So that means even though, uh, in theory, the 2,287 uh, deputies to the Congress uh, had full autonomy to elect a slate of Central Committee members, consisting of uh, 204, 204 people, and then subsequently the Central Committee would uh, select from amongst themselves the 25 member Politburo and subsequently the, the seven uh, most powerful men uh, in China, okay, the seven members of the Politburo Central Committee. Uh, however, uh, from this session onwards, uh, I was told by my friends uh, in uh, Beijing that there was a minimum of uh, election, okay, a minimum of uh, electoral procedure. Because uh, one year in advance, that means in the past 12 months, Xi Jinping himself, as the undisputed uh, core leader or paramount leader, well, he has interviewed up to 100 potential Central Committee members. So that means those uh, candidates for the Central Committee who uh, were lucky enough to, to, to get on the slate uh, to be presented to the party deputies. Well, this 
has already been picked by uh, Xi Jinping, okay, by Xi Jinping. So, um, so if, if you look at this image, uh, it looks as though um, we are back in the in the time machine, okay? We're we're back uh, to the Mao Zedong period, where it looks like um, there is only one man doing the talking, okay? That is this uh, in Chinese the Yi uh, Tang, the the echo chamber of one person speaking. Of course, the, the, the situation is much more complicated than this, and um, I will I will uh, go over this as as we go along. Okay, so um, the the most important uh, institutional reform which Deng Xiaoping put together in the early 80s as a result of the fact that Deng Xiaoping uh, was a major victim of the 10 years of chaos, the Cultural Revolution, and uh, to re prevent a similar situation of a dictator reappearing on the Chinese political landscape, uh, Deng Xiaoping put together a collective leadership system, okay? Collective leadership system, whereby uh, the party, country, and military is run by the Politburo Standing Committee, okay? Politburo Standing Committee, uh, which usually consists of either five, seven, or nine men, okay? Uh, well, uh, you may ask the question, uh, how come there are no women? Well, uh, we will discuss this later on, okay? Because at this stage, unfortunately, um, um, gender equality ha has not entered into the uh, political debate. Okay, so for a long time, I'm afraid, we'll only have uh, male comrades. Uh, according to uh, Xi Jinping's, uh, sorry, according to Deng Xiaoping's original uh, conception, uh, the general secretary uh, was only the first amongst equals. Okay, that means uh, even though he uh, was responsible for calling the, the meeting. He was responsible for chairing the meeting, for directing the traffic of the discussion. Uh, should there be a uh, disagreement amongst the seven uh, standing committee members, then uh, the vote cast by the general secretary uh, is no more important than the votes cast by the other standing committee members. Okay, and. Uh, a, a, a corollary of, of this is that all seven uh, political standing committee members have their individual portfolios, okay? So, for example, Zhao uh, Yongkang, I, I think a name which uh, most of you would find familiar. Zhao uh, Yongkang was the former political standing committee member in charge of internal security, okay? Including police, the state police, uh, the, the state security agencies, and so forth. So. Uh, for five years, Zhao Yongkang was the Politburo Standing Committee member in charge of the police. And uh, this was in the era of uh, Xi Jinping's predecessor, Hu Jintao, who ruled from the year 2002 to 2012. Uh, so in, in spite of the fact that it was common knowledge that Zhao Yongkang had used his position to build up a huge empire of his own, he was very corrupt. Uh, his uh, son and uh, daughter-in-law were doing uh, multi-million dollar uh, business. Uh, Hu Jintao did not interfere with um, Zhao Yongkang's portfolio, okay? So this was uh, the meaning of a collective, uh, a, a collective leadership system. However, with, with Xi Jinping, uh, it's totally opposite, okay? It's totally opposite. Well, Xi Jinping from day one, when Xi Jinping emerged as the general secretary, 
in November 2012, at the end of the 18th Party Congress, uh, from day one, Xi Jinping uh, is the big boss, okay? He's the big boss. That means all the other political standing committee members, uh, well, these are the, the new cohort, okay? The, the, the seven uh, standing committee members just elected uh, two, three weeks ago. So all the other six colleagues on the standing committee, uh, they report to Xi Jinping, okay? Xi Jinping is, is the big boss. Is the big boss. So this is this is one of the major differences, and um, I would also submit that um, Xi Jinping has broken other equally significant um, institutional and political reforms laid down by Deng Xiaoping in the early 80s. For example, uh, Deng Xiaoping, having having suffered from the tyranny of Mao Zedong, uh, said specifically that no more personality cult. Okay, that means uh, amongst his colleagues, irrespective of how capable, how charismatic they are, no more personality cult. And uh, there was one interesting phenomenon uh, afterwards, and that is, as you know, um, if, if, if I think many of you have been to China, so it, it is a custom for uh, ministers or senior officials uh, when they go to visit a factory, uh, a temple, or, or whatever, they usually uh, they would write uh, calligraphy, okay, calligraphy in their own hands to, to show, first of all, their, their own superior position and to give face to the factories or the uh, organization inviting them. But immediately after Deng Xiaoping gave this order, no more personality cult, well, these uh, ministers stopped practicing calligraphy, okay, because Deng Xiaoping said, uh, well, don't do any callig calligraphy, okay, <laughs> because this is, this is in line with the uh, personality cult. Um, no less important uh, is the fact that um, Deng Xiaoping, one of his major contributions was that, uh, well, during the Cultural Revolution, or even before, actually from 1949 to uh, 1976 when, when Mao Zedong passed away, so for 30-something years, uh, Mao Zedong was, was a demigod, okay? He was emperor for life. He was emperor for life. So, and um, you might also remember that uh, throughout his career, after 49, uh, Mao Zedong had designated several successors, okay? Including uh, the first one, of course, the, the, the best known uh, was uh, Liu Shaoqi, who was then the head of state. Um, and then subsequently, Lin Biao, who was a, uh, a master, uh, a brilliant uh, military tactician. Uh, but we all know what happened to Liu Shaoqi and, and Lin Biao, okay? They, they suffered uh, the, the, the most ignominious uh, death. Okay, so um, having absorbed these lessons, uh, Deng Xiaoping decided that there should be an orderly progression of uh, successes. That means there should be a quote-unquote scientific, at least, an orderly grooming of successes uh, for the next generation. So, uh, Deng Xiaoping himself um, uh, kicked the ball rolling by, in 1992, appointing uh, Hu Jintao, who was then just uh, 49 years old, not just 50 not yet 50, into the political standing committee as a uh, 
as an heir apparent to Zhang Jiming. Okay, actually, this this came as a surprise to Zhang Jiming because, uh, well, Deng Xiaoping, of course, was the paramount leader, so he he didn't bother to go through uh, any discussion with uh, Zhang Jiming. So Zhang Jiming was uh, actually unpleasantly surprised to learn that his successor has been has been picked. Okay, uh, but. Jiang Zemin uh, returned the favor to uh, Hu Jintao when in 2007 at the 17th Party Congress, uh, Jiang Zemin did the same. Well, in Chinese, this is called uh, okay? the, the, the cross-generation vaccination of successors. So in 2007, despite the fact that uh, everybody knew that Hu Jintao, who is uh, the leader of the Communist Youth League faction in China, uh, Hu Jintao was very anxious to have his protege, uh, Li Keqiang, the current Prime Minister, to become the next General Secretary. However, um, the Shanghai faction was still very powerful. So Jiang Zemin did something deliberately to, to frustrate uh, Hu Jintao's um, aspiration to have his, his own protege appointed General Secretary. So what happened was uh, Jiang Zemin installed Xi Jinping as the successor of Hu Jintao, whereas uh, Li Keqiang only got the uh, consolation prize of uh, Prime Minister. Okay, so uh, so this process actually had been um, had been uh, followed for, for two times, and uh, both times quite successfully. However, this orderly uh, progression and planning and grooming of successes broke down with Xi Jinping, okay? Broke down with Xi Jinping. Well, what happened was uh, when Xi Jinping came to power at the 18th Party Congress, there was initially a tacit understanding, okay? A tacit understanding uh, amongst the, the three most powerful men at the time. That means Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, and uh, Xi Jinping. So the tacit understanding was that According to established custom, um, Hu Jintao should have the right to appoint the successors of Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang. And, and Hu Jintao did. So that uh, you find that in the uh, larger Politburo, okay, uh, in, in the Chinese system, you have the Central Committee of 205 people, and then the, the larger Politburo of 25 members, and finally this, the seven member standing committee. So, in the larger Politburo of 25 members formed after the 18th Party Congress, there were only two, there were only two sixth generation officials appointed to the Politburo, okay? Well, sixth generation, uh, to make it simple, refers to officials born in the 1960s, okay? So they were um, the Guangzhou Party Secretary, Hu Zhenhua, and then the uh, Chongqing Party Secretary, uh, Xin Jiangtai, okay? However, uh, from day one, according to my information, uh, Xi Jinping had no intention of honoring this tacit understanding, okay? That means from day one, he had no intention of grooming either Hu Xunhua or Xin Jiangchai from Chongqing to be uh, his own successor and, and the successor of uh, the Prime Minister, Li Keqiang. And, um, those of you who have been following the news in China, uh, you, you probably know that uh, in July, there was a bombshell, okay? Just two months before the party Congress, there was a big bombshell, and that is uh, 
Mr. Shun, Shun Zhangchai from Chongqing, who was also a party member, was suddenly revoked. Okay, suddenly revoked. And uh, uh, as to the final uh, lineup of the party standing committee, uh, no surprise, there were no no younger generation rising star. Okay, no generation rising star. So uh, if we look at the the incumbents, okay, the newly selected uh, members of the Polish Polish Standing Committee, uh, we have of course uh, 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 Xi Jinping, uh, who will be um, who was born in '53, um, and uh, Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang uh, were the only two uh, incumbents uh, who are staying on. Okay, all the five new inductees, the five new newcomers. Well, these are familiar faces, okay? Uh, they were, they were uh, born in, in the 1950s, okay? They were born in the 1950s. And, uh, well, here I would like to uh, disclose uh, a state secret, uh, state secret to you, okay? My, my, my first state secret for this evening. And that is, um, I'm also a member of the fifth generation, okay? So, <laughs> So you can, you can say that uh, I, I have some bias in favor of the fifth generation, okay? Um, well, of course, I'm not a party member, but you can say I'm a, I'm a fifth generation uh, fellow traveler, maybe. But anyway, um, this, is, this is very strange. This is very strange. A, a polyfluoro standing company member with no rising stars waiting in the wings. This is uh, totally against not only the teachings of Deng Xiaoping, but even the teachings of Mao Zedong, okay? Because uh, if you have studied even casually the Cultural Revolution, uh, you, would, you would remember that Mao Zedong selected a, uh, a young uh, Shanghai worker, uh, Wang Hongwen, okay? Who was, I think, uh, under, 40 years of work, under 40 years of age. So, so Wang Hongwen, who was just an ordinary worker who had done nothing special, not no no national achievement, but he was picked by uh, Mao Zedong as one of the vice chairman of the party, okay, a, a potential successor, and and uh, Mao Zedong also picked a um, a vegetable hawker, okay, a, a female vegetable hawker as a as a wife premier, who was also thirty something, okay. So it shows that Mao Zedong was was conscious of uh, nurturing young minds to be successors, but, but not Xi Jinping, okay? Not Xi Jinping. So uh, you may ask the question, so what happens? What happens? Um, what happens when there are no uh, rising stars in the, in the, in the Politburo, in the Politburo Standing Committee? Well, uh, the only conclusion we can draw is that uh, Xi Jinping has no intention of retiring, okay? Xi Jinping has no intention of retiring, even though there has been a long-established convention that the general secretary only serves two terms of five years each, okay? So if, um, if Xi Jinping were a, um, were a proper party member, okay, observing party rules and regulations, um, he, would, he would have made preparations for his own retirement five years down the road. That means that he... 20th Party Congress in, in 2022, okay? But the fact that there were no successes, 
there were no successes uh, on the horizon shows that at the very least, at the very least, Xi Jinping will remain what um, his, his admirer Donald Trump called the king of China, okay? The king of China uh, for at least 15 years. That means until the 21st Paris Congress in 2007. Uh, but if you ask me, okay, if you ask me, um, according to my friends and sources in Beijing and Shanghai, Xi Jinping actually wants to become, well, uh, well, here I, I, I use a fairly um, critical and cynical term, okay? Uh, Xi Jinping <coughs> has decided very early on to remain emperor for life, okay? Emperor for life. That means he rules until 2032. Uh, at the 22nd Party Congress in 2032, when he will be, um, he will be 79, okay? He will be 79. Well, of course, um, I think most of you know Chinese culture, okay? Well, we, we, we Chinese uh, venerate um, old age. So uh, people my age, okay, in the mid-60s, uh, we have just barely um, entered into the first stage of middle age, okay? Uh, uh, as, for, as for people in the uh, 80s and 90s, uh, well, Xi Jinping can point to Donald Trump, okay? Donald Trump is 7172, and um, if, if God forbid, okay, Donald Trump gets a second term. So when, when Donald Trump finishes his second term, he will be uh, 78, 79, okay? So Xi Jinping will say that, well, in, in this case, we, we follow... We follow the, the universal norms, okay? We follow the universal norms, <laughs> right? Uh, the other perspective is that uh, well, Donald Trump is a, is a big fan of uh, Vladimir Putin, okay? So, uh, but Putin has already uh, <clears throat> ruled for uh, 17, 18 years, and he will be running for uh, next year, 2018. He will be running for six years, a six-year term as president. Okay, so Donald, so, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Vladimir Putin. So Putin might end up running the country until, um, until uh, 2026, okay? By which time he will have been uh, number one of Russia for more than 20 years. Okay, so, so in this case, uh, we, we, we cannot exactly say that uh, Xi Jinping is super ambitious, okay? Because he's just following in the footsteps of his, his good friend. Um, one of the reasons, one of the reasons why uh, Xi Jinping is not very anxious to pick a uh, heir apparent or successor is that, uh, well, if he plans to stay in power for 10 more years or 15 more years, there is absolutely no urgency, okay, no urgency to pick an heir apparent. Because in the Chinese tradition, the, the very act of picking a successor automatically creates a lot of problem, okay? So, the, the successor might be uh, suspected of trying to upstage his uh, patron, okay? Uh, this has happened time and again, you know, Lin Biao, for example. So Lin Biao was picked by Mao Zedong as his successor, but, well, uh, but almost from day one, uh, Mao Zedong suspected Lin Biao of plotting a plot against himself. So. The, the naming of a successor uh, in the Chinese tradition is a hazardous uh, venture, okay. Uh, but the most important thing, I think, is that um, Xi Jinping is very anxious to build up his own faction. That means the, the Xi Jinping faction. Well, 
those of you who have uh, not been in China for the past uh, two, three years, uh, you might be surprised to hear the term uh, Xi Jinping faction. Okay? Uh, well, you can translate this into uh, uh, Xi Jinping Bang Pai, okay? Or, or Xi Jinping Pai. Well, uh, you're right, because the, the Xi Jinping faction did not exist as late as five years ago, okay? And um, this is a tribute to Xi Jinping's uh, very successful ability to, uh, to uh, pull strings from behind the scenes, okay? He's an expert in building coalitions, in um, allocating powers to himself. So within, within five years, the Xi Jinping faction, which did not exist five years ago, it has emerged as the largest, most powerful faction in the party, government, and military today, okay? And whereas uh, the two previous major factions, the, the Shanghai faction, uh, led by Jiang Zemin, and the, the Yuflik faction, as I mentioned, led by um, Hu Jintao, uh, well, these two factions uh, have ceased to be a, a, a force to be reckoned with. They have been, they have been totally marginalized by, by Xi Jinping. So, uh, so another good reason for Xi Jinping to postpone the, uh, the process of finding the successor is that uh, he's anxious to see uh, which of the uh, young men and women, well, unfortunately, mostly, mostly men actually, uh, who were born in, in, in the 60s and who might one day uh, measure up to the task of being the top leader. Okay, so, um, so, so very briefly, I'll explain the, the components of the, uh, of the Xi Jinping faction. Uh, well, this is, this is fairly important for you because I think uh, some of you want to, uh, after graduation, want to go to China to do business, okay? So if you know who are members of the Xi Jinping faction, then, uh, you know, spend more time and resources on, on that person, okay? <laughs> don't, 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 don't take the wrong Guan Xi, okay? This is, uh, this is lethal in, in China. If, if, if your business partner belongs to, a, to the wrong network of Guan Xi, Okay, you're, you're just wasting your time and money. So, uh, the, the Xi Jinping faction, uh, actually, it's very simple. Uh, Xi Jinping, uh, unlike most other top leaders, spent the bulk of his career in the provinces. Okay, so he was in Shanghai, Zhejiang, and very briefly in uh, Shanghai from uh, 1985 to 2007. Okay, to 2007. So, most of the members of his factions are his associates, his underlings, his apologies, his cronies, uh, whom he got to know very well and, and who earned his trust in those, uh, those provincial years when, when Xi Jinping was working in, uh, along the coast, okay? And, uh, well, there, there are two other subsets, two other subsets of the, of the Xi Jinping faction. One is uh, his classmates in high school, uh, his classmates at, at Tsinghua University, okay? So, uh, for those of you at Sydney University who want to run for big office one day, uh, you need to cultivate good guanxi with your classmates, okay? So, uh, in the case of Xi Jinping, uh, for example, his, uh, his, roommate, his roommate at Tsinghua University is now uh, a member of the Politburo, 
uh, the director of the organization department, that means the, the, the person in charge of personnel within the whole system, an extremely powerful position, okay? And that, that is Mr. Chen Xi, his, uh, his, um, who lives in the same dormitory, okay? And his good friend from high school days, uh, Professor Liu He, uh, who um, is his main, uh, main, uh, major economics advisor, uh, is now a member of the Politburo. Okay. Uh, the, the third subset is, uh, consists of um, fellow natives from Shanxi province. Okay, Shanxi province. Uh, I think most of you have been to Shanxi, okay? Famous for its uh, terracotta uh, soldiers from the Qin dynasty. Uh, Xi Jinping actually was not born in uh, Shanxi, but uh, Shanxi uh, is his um, home province. And um, there are two or three uh, top officials, actually two current uh, Politburo Standing Committee members. One is uh, Li Jiangshu, okay? Li Jiangshu, uh, who will become the, uh, the number three in the Standing Committee. That means the, uh, the chairman of the National People's Congress. Uh, Li Jiangshu, and also the perhaps the, the third most powerful uh, leader of China, uh, the, the new standing committee member in charge of fighting corruption, uh, Zhao Leiji. So both Mr. Zhao and Mr. Li uh, served for many years in Shanxi province, and um, they, they took very good care of uh, the relatives of Xi Jinping. Okay, for example, uh, Xi Jinping's father, who was a, um, a former vice premier, who was a, a liberal icon, okay? And, and I must say here that um, his father actually was uh, as liberal as Xi Jinping was conservative, okay? So in this sense, you can say that um, ideologically speaking, uh, Xi Jinping is not actually his father's son, not, definitely not his father's successor in terms of uh, the, the uh, trajectory of ideology. Uh, we could discuss this later, okay? But uh, the two gentlemen, okay, Li Jiangshu and Zhao Leiji, uh, they have now risen to the top, largely because when they were officials in Shanxi province, uh, they took very good care of, um, of Xi Jinping's relatives, including when his father, Xi Jinping, uh, passed away in 2002, uh, Zhao Leiji, who was the party secretary of Shanxi at the time, uh, built a gorgeous, uh, very uh, grandiose um, uh, monument, okay, monument to uh, Xi Jinping's father. Okay, so that was how he, uh, uh, he curricated with, uh, very successfully with, with uh, Xi Jinping. Okay, and uh, well, for those of you uh, into Chinese politics, um, if you look at the, the larger Politburo, okay, the 25-member Politburo, you will see that uh, according to my own estimation, okay, out of the 25, uh, at least 15 or 16 are members of the Xi Jinping faction. Uh, this is very peculiar in uh, recent Communist Party history because, uh, again, according to Deng Xiaoping, okay, Deng Xiaoping laid down a very uh, important instruction saying that uh, top officials in the party government and military, uh, they must come from the five lakes and the four seas, okay? Five lakes and four seas, meaning 
they should come from different factions, they should come from different parts of China, they should have uh, disparate backgrounds, okay? Some might be engineers, others uh, economists and so forth, but there should be a rough balance of power at the top, but not with Xi Jinping, okay? Not with Xi Jinping. Uh, Xi Jinping um, is a person who loves power, okay? Uh, and, and this is perhaps the, um, the biggest understatement of this evening, okay? Xi Jinping loves power. So uh, he's very anxious to make sure that the top positions are only filled by his protégés, that means uh, members of the Xi Jinping faction. Okay, so um, some more evidence, some more evidence why um, I put out this theory that Xi Jinping is aiming for no less than emperor for life. So, um, at the 19th Party Congress, apart from picking the leaders, another very important ritual was the uh, slight revision of the party constitution, okay, the CCP constitution. And um, again, going against long-standing custom, uh, Xi Jinping was able to persuade party leaders to allow his Xi Jinping thought, okay, uh, Xi Jinping thought to be enshrined in the party constitution. Uh, even though th there was uh, some um, unexpected development and, and there was uh, there was opposition to the opposition to the wording, okay? Because if Xi Jinping thought were enshrined in the party constitution, everybody uh, in China and abroad would automatically equate Xi Jinping thought with Mao Zedong thought, okay? Xi Jinping Xixiang and um, Mao Zedong Xixiang, okay? This is automatic association. And uh, by one stroke, Xi Jinping would have elevated himself to the same status as Mao Zedong in, in the pantheon of party leaders. And uh, this is one example, okay? One very clear-cut example that uh, there are limits to Xi Jinping's powers, okay? And, and we can discuss this uh, later on because uh, Xi Jinping is a master, um, is a master communicator, okay? Uh, well, of course, not masterful as uh, Ronald Reagan, but uh, he, he knew how to use the uh, propaganda machinery very well. So, uh, so the picture that Xi Jinping has successfully given to the outside world the people in Australia, the US and so forth, is that uh, he has made it, okay? The 19th Party Congress is, is nothing more than a coronation of Xi Jinping as emperor for life. But, but the picture is, uh, as with everything else in China, is much more complicated. There was resistance. And uh, one, one good example of resistance is that uh, there were party elders, there were um, stakeholders in the party, who um, did not agree to uh, Xi Jinping thought being put into the party constitution. So what happened was uh, Xi Jinping had to make, make a concession. He had to live with a much longer version. Um, of course, also bearing his name. So this longer version is um, Xi Jinping thought on socialism with 
Chinese characteristics for, for the new era, okay? Uh, this is a, a, uh, a clunker, you know, uh, I, I think most, most foreigners who don't understand Chinese have, have no idea what it means, okay? And, uh, and uh, you are not exactly wrong because uh, this um, Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era, uh, this is basically a cliche, okay? This is basically a, a cliche. Maybe uh, you well, you, you can call it the um, the second state secret uh, of, of this evening, okay? Or you can say this is a kind of a uh, an emperor's new clothes, okay? An emperor's new clothes, uh, because Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for for a new era is very close to uh, Xi Jinping's first and best known slogan, and that is the Chinese dream, okay? Um, there are many similarities between the Chinese dream and this new era socialism. Basically, uh, without going into details, it is a, a super nationalistic slogan. It is an appeal to um, ordinary Chinese uh, patriotic pride, okay? The fact that after a thousand, uh, after one and a half centuries of um, humiliation at the hands of the colonial powers, of course, it, excluding Australia, okay? So uh, Australians are always welcome in, in China. <laughs> uh, so after weathering this uh, more than a, one and a half century of colonial humiliation, uh, China finally stood up, okay? I, I think most of you remember uh, October 1st, 1949, uh, Mao Zedong stood, stood up at the rostrum of Tiananmen Square saying that uh, we Chinese today have stood up, okay? We Chinese today have stood up. So according to Xi Jinping, uh, Mao Zedong united China and, and uh, made possible uh, one China un undivided, okay? Except, of course, for Taiwan, uh, which we'll discuss, okay? Taiwan uh, and uh, Xinjiang and Singapore. Uh, so, right, and uh, as for Deng Xiaoping, okay, the second most important leader in the Communist Party, Deng Xiaoping's reform and open door policy made it possible for China to become rich, okay, to become rich. So how about Xi Jinping? Well, Xi Jinping's mission is to make China strong, okay, economically, militarily, and most importantly, by the middle of the century, China will take center stage on the world, uh, on the on, on the international in the international arena. Okay, well, uh, for obvious reasons, uh, Xi Jinping has never used the word superpower. Okay, but uh, it is definitely sure that um, Xi Jinping hopes that um, at the latest, by the middle of this century, China will have become a full-fledged superpower, able to challenge so-called uh, U.S. Germany uh, at every turn, okay, at every turn. So, um, so his uh, new era socialism is divided mainly into three three stages, okay. So the first stage is two hundred two one. That means just a few years a few years down the road, the the uh, centenary of the of the establishment of the Communist Party, uh, China will have become a moderately prosperous uh, society, okay. Uh, well, this goal has been reached by and large, okay? Even though, of course, you can say that uh, China is still a very unequal society, okay? 
um, the official data for, for uh, Gini coefficient, which is a, a, a um, popular pseudosciences method for measuring inequality of, uh, of wealth in society. The official figure is 0 0.473, okay? But the uh, sociologists, um, other scholars I talked to in Beijing said that it is closer to 0.6, okay? Which is a, a horrendously high degree of uh, social inequality. But anyway, uh, by 2021, uh, China has more or less attained a, a, a moderately successful society, okay? And then the next watershed will be uh, 2035. 2035. Uh, China will have attained most of the, the four modernizations, okay? You remember Deng Xiaoping came out with the four modernizations. So the four modernizations will be attained. So China will become a all-rounded socialist, um, uh, a, a successful socialist country, okay, uh, by 2035. But uh, 2050 is the most important, okay, 2050. And, and some people say 2049, because 2049 is the centenary, of course, of the establishment of the, of the, uh, of the People's Republic. So by 2049 or 2050, uh, China will become a superpower. China will become a superpower, okay. And uh, if you look at the, um, I will not bore you with uh, a lot of official, um, official um, bureaucratic language, but uh, if, if, if you look up, you will see that uh, the, the quotation marks in blue, okay, the, the last paragraph. Uh, by or before the year 2050, China will have become a full-fledged superpower capable of challenging the U.S. at every turn, okay? And Beijing is, I, I quote from uh, Xi Jinping, comprehensively pushing forward a major country diplomacy with Chinese characteristics so as to usher in a multi-directional, multi-faceted, and three-dimensional diplomatic uh, arrangement. Uh, well, this is typical uh, uh, Chinese group bureaucratic language, okay? And, and I will imagine uh, also uh, maybe typical Australian uh, or, or American uh, bureaucratic language. And, and, and this, by the way, was one of the reasons why um, Xi Jinping, uh, at the opening of the Congress, uh, he broke all the records by spending for three and a half hours reading out his message, okay? Uh, without once going to the loo, and uh, only drinking one sip of water uh, during the three and a half hours. Okay, a demonstration of, of the fact that uh, he is healthy enough to last until uh, 232. <laughs> but anyway, I'm sorry for this uh, distraction. Uh, okay, so, um, so the, quest, the, the, the first question uh, which I asked um, uh, at this lecture, and that is what will uh, Xi Jinping, now that he has become what his critics call emperor for life, what, what will he use his power for? The, the, the first answer is nationalism, okay, nationalism. Uh, well, Xi Jinping is a, is a super nationalist, and uh, there is good reason why uh, he should be focusing attention on nationalism. That means uh, hard and soft power projection, okay, hard and soft power projection. Uh, through uh, overarching, um, very ambitious uh, intercontinental undertakings, 
for example, under the bell and row initiative, okay? Otherwise known as one bell and row, uh, which we might discuss later on, okay? And uh, of course, through massive investments in Australia, in New Zealand, uh, in the EU, and so forth. Uh, nationalism is very important because, after all, uh, the Communist Party has no ballot box legitimacy, okay? Has no ballot box legitimacy. So, uh, what sustained the Communist Party in the past two decades? Uh, there were two pillars of legitimacy. One was the, the Chinese economic miracle, okay? Which unfortunately ended um, about six, seven years ago. And uh, the Chinese economy is facing um, major problems, okay? Major problems, even though uh, I don't doubt the fact that it will still continue to grow at around 6% every year, which is, which is a extremely respectable figure for a um, half-developed country, okay? But uh, the economy is starting to face problems, and um, uh, people's, uh, uh, people can no longer take it for granted that their standard of living will increase year after year. So the result is that uh, the economy as a pillar of legitimacy uh, is losing its force. So this leaves nationalism, okay? So nationalism is a fail-safe, is a fail-safe fail uh, pillar of legitimacy because uh, for, for, for reasons which we might dis discuss later on, uh, the Chinese leadership, the Chinese propaganda machinery and so forth, the Chinese education system has been extremely successful in uh, inculcating amongst students even top students from Tsinghua, Beiba, uh, a, a sense of patriotism, okay? So the fact that um, Xi Jinping and, and the Chinese leadership uh, is, is now front and center on the world stage, okay? The fact that um, um, uh, Donald Trump um, today is, is, is going to China to, um, to, to actually um, well, not exactly to present tributaries, uh, uh, but uh, to, to present uh, the the the, um, the gifts of a vassal state, but actually to to back China to do something about North Korea. Okay, so this reflects China's much enhanced position on the world stage. Okay, and and this remains a, a major pillar of legitimacy for for China. So so that's why I think um, Xi Jinping will continue. Okay. To devote resources, uh, financial and otherwise, to um, extending Chinese influence, both high and soft powers, uh, around the world. Around the world. Uh, the next question, which I will um, tackle, uh, um, because because I'm running out of time. Okay, is is the economy. Okay, is the economy. Um, well. Many people have um, concluded that Xi Jinping is, is a conservative, okay? And, and uh, generally, I agree with this assessment, okay? I agree with this assessment. However, um, Xi Jinping is also a smart person, okay? He realizes that uh, to maintain the party's legitimacy, to, to maintain stability in the country, uh, a 6% growth rate is is a prerequisite, okay? It's the lowest, it's the lowest level of economic growth. And uh, surprisingly, uh, 
I mean, Steve Kershaw, uh, well, so in public, okay? This is supposed to be a state secret, okay? The fact that they, they, they need to maintain 6% growth rate to maintain stability, but, but Lee Kershaw says so in public, okay? So, uh, so the big question is whether with his uh, much enhanced powers, uh, Xi Jinping will devote more conviction, more energy, more resources to economic reforms. Uh, the answer is um, yes and no, okay? <laughs> The answer is yes and no. Well, first of all, um, there is no question that uh, Xi Jinping will, will roll back Deng Xiaoping's uh, economic reforms, okay? So, uh, as I mentioned at the very beginning, uh, Xi Jinping um, does, uh, does not think highly of Deng Xiaoping's institutional and, and political reforms, but uh, economic reform is otherwise, okay? So, um, if you read through uh, Xi Jinping's uh, 55,000 Chinese character um, his, his address to the party congress, okay? 55,000 Chinese characters. Um, I think very few, very few people have read through it, okay? So I, I have read it five times, okay? Um, I've read it five times. Um, in his speech, uh, perhaps uh, in view of the uh, imminent arrival of Donald Trump, uh, Xi Jinping has made some concessions, okay, has made some concessions. For example, he said that um, the, uh, the red carpet would be uh, rolled out for Western, for multinationals, even for uh, uh, companies uh, in the financial services sector, okay? Uh, well, whether you believe in this is, is uh, your own judgment, okay? But I, what I can tell you is that the um, High-tech and financial services sectors are the most problematic area. They are, they are the, um, the apple of discord between uh, Donald Trump and uh, Xi Jinping's team, okay? They have, they have been negotiating uh, the, the so-called uh, 301 investigation into uh, China's protection of intellectual property rights and then investigations as to whether in the past five years, Xi Jinping has uh, added um, obvious and hidden barriers uh, to entry for multinationals, okay? But in any case, uh, Xi Jinping seemed to be making, making nice in, in his long speech, okay? Uh, whether this will materialize is, is another question. Uh, my, my theory is that um, it, it depends on China's needs, okay? If, if China thinks that a, a 6% growth rate uh, is predicated upon a more generous open door policy, that means uh, allowing more multinationals to um, open branches in China, uh, this, this might materialize. Similarly, for, for other long-awaited reforms, okay? I remember when I, when, I, when I first worked in Beijing in the mid-80s, uh, my, my friends in the Chinese government, they, they already um, spelled out the, the timetable for the full convertibility of the RMB, okay? So um, I remember at, at first they were saying 1995 and then uh, the year 2000, okay? And now this is 2017 and uh, uh, this has not materialized. And um, in fact, uh, since last, uh, since the middle of early this year, uh, the Chinese government has uh, slapped additional restrictions on 
capital account uh, uh, inflow and outflow, okay? Because they were, they were, uh, Beijing is very nervous that this uh, multi-billion dollar private companies like Dali and Wanda, like Boshin in Shanghai, like Anbang and uh, h and and so forth, uh, they were taking too much money overseas and uh, investing in um, in uh, Hollywood studios, in hotels, um, in real estate, and so forth. So there was actually a crackdown on the um, on the free movement of capital in in and out of China. Okay, so whether they might um, they might reverse trend and and liberalize this uh, capital flow uh, is is difficult to say. It's difficult to say. Okay, uh, but I think. Um, before I stop, uh, the most important thing to note is that um, Xi Jinping said, in order to reach this uh, new era of socialism with Chinese characteristics, uh, there are 14 policy areas, okay, 14 policy areas. And the first and the most important one is that the Communist Party should be in control of all sectors in society, okay? so. Uh, these uh, yellow Chinese characters, uh, she means that whether it's anything coming from the east, the west, the south, the north, the central, the party should the party should be in control. Okay, the party should be in control. So, uh, regarding this, sorry, uh, I, I I didn't have time to do with the military. Okay, even though this this. It, this is one of my areas of specialization, but we could uh, we could discuss this. Uh, so we, we jump to the to the reform of state-owned enterprise. Well, uh, as as you know, China is a mixed economy. Okay, that means um, one part of the economy is integrated with the international marketplace, but huge sectors of the economy are still controlled by about ninety-seven state-owned enterprise conglomerates. Okay. Uh, well, these state-owned enterprise conglomerates, in some ways, are, are similar to the table in South Korea. Okay, as you know, in, in South Korea, the, the uh, South Korean economy is basically controlled by about fifteen big table, except that of course, table are largely private, uh, or they have been privatized since the financial crisis. But in China, these uh, Chinese-style table. Uh, they are majority controlled by the state, okay? Even though most of them are now listed on the stock market in Shanghai and Hong Kong, okay? Uh, but the state still holds about 40% shares. So, so one reform which uh, has drawn uh, attention from Western investors is that uh, Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang have proposed diversifying the ownership of this uh, uh, SOE conglomerates. Okay, that means this SRE conglomerate should have mixed ownership. Okay, mixed ownership. So uh, the best example so far is uh, one of these uh, huge, uh, well, what we call dinosaur, okay? <laughs> dinosaur state-owned enterprises, uh, China Unicom, uh, which has not been doing very well. So uh, in the past year, uh, the central government has sold about 30% of the shares of China Unicom to other state-owned companies, as well as to the big um, successful Chinese uh, private companies like Alibaba, Tencent, and, and Baidu. Okay, uh, 
but the the important thing you, you, you need to note is that despite having uh, sold 30% of the shares of Unicom, okay, uh, the, the board of directors, the, the CEO, the chairman, the president, are still appointed by the party state apparatus, okay? And I, I don't see any possibility that, um, you know, this, this reform will, will um, go the distance. That means uh, this reform will eventually result in the uh, full privatization of this uh, state giant, okay? And, and this is simply because Xi Jinping believes that um, in order for China to avoid the, the, the fate which befell the Soviet Union in 1991-92, that means the wholesale collapse of the Soviet Party, uh, the Communist Party must control three things, okay? Three or four things. First, the army and the police. Secondly, uh, the business sector or powerful business sector. And thirdly, maintain control over, over the minds of the people. Okay, maintain control over the minds of people. So, um, so that there are there are limits as to the extent to which this uh, apparently exciting uh, reform might uh, materialize in, in, in the coming uh, two to three years. And uh, one 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 example. Okay, uh, one one piece of evidence. One piece of evidence which I have. Uh, which I can cite in, in support of my hypothesis is that for the first time ever, for the first time ever, uh, the CEOs of 20 of this large state-owned enterprise conglomerate have been elected to the Central Committee, okay? Even though uh, elected to the Central Committee as alternate members, okay? Alternate meaning second-tier members. Well, this, this has never happened before, okay? This has never happened before. Well, these 20 uh, CEOs, uh, they are the, the movers and shakers of, uh, of, of Chinese industry because they are, they are the presidents or CEOs of huge state-owned companies, okay? So now that they have become uh, senior party officials, uh, well, the only conclusion you can draw is that uh, Xi Jinping is genuinely convinced that the party must be in control of these big enterprises. And at the same time, uh, we have seen the revival of the practice of um, more power given to the party cells, party organizations of companies, whether they are state-owned or private, okay? As you know, uh, under, the, under the constitution of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, wherever you have three party members in one place, okay? Uh, you have to form a party cell, okay? <laughs> you have to form a party cell. So, uh, so in, in all the uh, business operations in China, whether they are, they are state-owned, private, or foreign companies, uh, there are party organizations, okay? And the, the top party organization, okay? That means the, um, the, the, the main party organization, Xi Jinping said, should be given more power in, in, in running uh, business-related um, business-related decision-making. Uh, finally, uh, I would just like to say a few words about the, about the Belt and Road, okay? The Belt and Road. 
uh, I will not debate uh, well the Byron Road or, or one Byron Road is is at its uh, embryonic stage okay it, it is a overarching project lasting uh, 30 to 40 years at least and then actually this is one pretext okay one of the best pretexts why Xi Jinping can tell his uh, party members that I, I need to stay around for for several more decades okay because this this projects I need to see them through okay and I, I cannot retire next year or, or uh, next five years uh, but I, I uh, have spotlighted the the, um, the Baron Road to, to illustrate uh, two points okay to illustrate two points and, and that is um, according to the China model okay according to the China model uh, postulated by um, many respectable Western uh, Chinese scholars uh, China can become a successful country at least economically and socially without going through the so-called Western or universal uh, model of uh, say one person one vote elections freedom of, freedom of the media freedom of, freedom of the press and so forth okay so uh, China can become very successful without um, without going through the trappings of, of Western um, values or universal values but there are two conditions okay two conditions one is the Communist Party and government must have a meritocratic party system okay meritocratic meritocratic um, party system so that the best and the brightest officials will be appointed to the Politburo and so forth okay so this is the, the first condition the second condition is that decision-making for example uh, particularly involving this multi-trillion dollar decision uh, the decision-making must be scientific quote-unquote scientific that means despite the fact that uh, China is the heart of authoritarian state when the Politburo or Politburo Standing Committee makes a major decision they must do thorough they must undertake thorough consultation okay they must also uh, check public opinion okay public opinion well uh, some of you might be puzzled by, 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 by the words public opinion because as you know um, uh, doing public opinion doing public opinion polls on political issues uh, is illegal for foreign companies okay but but I can tell you that uh, party and state organizations they do uh, extremely frequent uh, opinion polls on all subjects okay on, on North Korea on uh, China Japan relations China US relations on, on, on the Bell and Road and so forth okay so so the second condition to, to, to put it short is that uh, Chinese decision-making must be based on sound consultation with with uh, with a broad range of uh, experts okay from from the party from the uh, state council from the military and so forth okay and it must be based on popular opinion okay so uh, I think by and large um, even uh, of course you may you may challenge me on this but by and large I think um, this was 
fairly successful. Okay, that means these these two um, conditions: meritocratic uh, artery system and "quote unquote" scientific decision making was by and large successful uh, during the Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao era. Okay, that means from from 1989 to uh, 2012. However, and, and this is the big question, okay? And I, I will end my talk on this. Um, I just spent many minutes on explaining the composition of the CNK faction, okay? Um, I have watched the careers of this, uh, particularly the rising stars within the faction very carefully, okay, very carefully. Uh, most of the, particularly the young people, uh, whether they are from the party, the government, the military, promoted by Xi King in the past five years. The promotion is mostly based on loyalty, okay? That means these members of the Xi Jinping faction, okay, who are actually his protégés, his cronies, uh, they must profess unquestioned loyalty, undivided fealty to Xi Jinping before they get the promotion, okay? And uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, Xi Jinping himself personally interviewed, okay? Personally interviewed prospective members of the Central Committee, prospective ministers, prospective uh, members of the Politburo. Okay, so, so from the point of view of meritocratic party system, uh, this is a big problem, okay? Because Xi Jinping, has not followed this golden rule, okay? He prefers loyalty, loyalty above all else. Secondly, decision-making. Uh, the, past, the past five years have witnessed a series of very problematic uh, decision-making. Uh, for example, the July 2015 stock market crisis, okay? Stock market crisis in which um, about 70, 80 million Chinese lost money. The, the entire episode, that means at the beginning of 2015, the government deliberately uh, tried, to, tried, to e tried to inject very positive sentiment, okay? The People's Daily, I remember, in, in, a, in, in an editorial on April 4th, claim that the Shanghai stock index would go up to 8,000 8, or 9,000, okay? So the government was deliberately stocking the, the claims of the, uh, of the market. But however, in July, the market crashed. And uh, the entire operation, okay, which I won't go into detail, the entire operation was very sharply handled, very sharply handled. Uh, to the extent that at one point, the central government had to send police officers to stock companies which have the rep reputation of being uh, short sellers, okay? So the police basically arrived in this, uh, in this uh, securities and uh, stock, stocks companies, basically giving orders, saying that from now on, you can only buy, okay? You cannot sell. So, this is one example. The second example is, is the Bell and Road, uh, which uh, 
Well, this is a complicated story. Um, well, th there are, of course, um, acolytes, uh, supporters of the Baron Rose, um, to which I, I do not belong, okay? To which I, be I do not belong. But we, we can discuss this um, in relation to other foreign policy problems. Okay, I'm sorry I have um, taken more of my time, okay? Taken, taken uh, more of my prescribed time. So, uh, but... Um, I'm, I'm willing to, to stay here and uh, handle your question. Right. Um, so, we, thank you very much. Uh, lots of questions, I'm sure, are emerging. So, uh, I'm keen on, on letting as many people ask questions as possible. So, can I collect maybe three or four questions to start with? So, one is there. One is here, and one is here to start with. Uh, and then we can have a discussion. I will withheld my own questions for the <laughs> Okay, 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 okay. Please. Okay. Thank you. Um, thank you, Professor, for the very insightful speech. I have two questions. Uh, one is, as you said in the speech, that maybe during uh, the middle of this century, China will rise as a superpower that suppresses U.S. in terms of military capacity and economic capacity, but remain unchanged in its political weight. So, and then my first question is, how should the rest of the world or the Western world deal with China? as China has no willing to change its political system. And we know that national youth like, like to grow with nations that have similar political ideology. It's okay to put a nuclear bomb in Canada, but it's not okay to put it in North Korea for US, for example. Uh, my second question is, uh, in a recent uh, report delivered by Xi Jinping in a key meeting, the 19th uh, National Congress, he mentioned repeatedly the uh, democratization within the party in his report. So can we see the democratization within the party in the coming five to 10 years? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, Virginia Rigoni, thanks very much for your uh, presentation and for your insights. You've mentioned and highlighted the Belt and Road Initiative as a major project. Could you perhaps comment on whether with the um, recent uh, reappointment, if you like, of Xi Jinping, whether we will see a, now a focus for the Belt and Road Project over the next five years and with that, um, what that may look like? Um, and because it's a big project, so will we start to see... Uh, a refinement of that, and, and what will that look like? Thank you. Uh, all right, may I sit down? Uh, my name is Tony Tan. I'm a product of the British Empire and also a product of the Cold War. I'm an overseas-born Chinese with, hun with sometimes generations away from China. I have a different perspective of what you say, but I do... Uh, learn a lot from you, but I'd like to say this. During the Cold War, I read American propaganda and I also read China Reconstructs. Now, all these things said to us that there is evil in either political process, either political ideology. 
We should fight each other, contend each other. Okay, now the question is, since China has succeeded in lifting the standards of living of its people, southern the United States, why are these political ideologies still crashing to each other? Will there be a new ideological course for global peace and prosperity? Okay. Okay, sure. Uh, well, I, I turn to the easiest question first. <laughs> Uh, the, the prospect of um, uh, intra-party democracy within the party, okay? Um, one word, uh, zero. Because um, uh, against, well, totally against party tradition, um, Xi Jinping has inserted into the new constitution, that means the, the revised constitution, uh, two sentences. One is um, the basic duty of a party member is to study uh, Xi Jinping's ideas. Okay. The second one is uh, party officials and party members. They have to um, ensure that uh, their perception, okay, the way they see the, the, the way they see things, would. Um, Dovetail, they would, would, would be totally the same as, as that of uh, the, the top leader, that means Xi Jinping. Uh, and um, not to mention uh, other episodes in, in the past two or three years, particularly this, um, well, uh, what people cynically say uh, is, is, a, is a totally ridiculous um, regulation uh, imposed by Xi Jinping saying that um, party officials and party members, uh, they must not make um, groundless criticism or unfounded criticism against the party central authorities. Uh, in Chinese, uh, it, it's uh, that means making groundless and um, uh, baseless accusations against the top leadership. So all this is meant to um, consolidate and, and, and perpetuate his personal dictatorship, if you will, over the party. Okay. Um, I also studied. Um, well, I, I, I also wrote a book on um, Hu Jintao, and, and I wrote a book on Jiang Zemin. Uh, I think Hu Jintao was quite sincere when he proposed intra-party democracy in, in 2007. If you read Hu Jintao's report to the 17th Party Congress in 2007, uh, there were many surprisingly liberal elements, okay, liberal elements, uh, but not Xi Jinping, not Xi Jinping. Uh, the, the, the second answer, uh, I mean, the, the, the first question you asked was, was very meaningful. Um, I, I think obviously, uh, well, China is the, um, well, according to um, uh, PPP measurements, uh, the Chinese economy has already surpassed that of the US, okay? Uh, it did three, four years ago. Uh, China is now the, the, uh, the provider of the largest amount of overseas development aid in the world. Uh, China provides the largest number of 
soldiers and police for UN mandated peacekeeping force around the world. Okay, and uh, China will definitely well, uh, well, uh, uh, Beijing deserves the credit. Okay, Beijing deserves the credit for I think Beijing will continue to provide uh, public goods for the global community, particularly in light of what uh, Donald Trump has been doing. Okay. Donald Trump, um, by the way, Donald Trump is, I think, uh, the, the, the best thing that has happened to uh, Xi Jinping, okay? Because Donald Trump's um, isolationist uh, proclivities has created a vacuum in the world in which Xi Jinping uh, has stepped in very successfully, very successfully. So China will continue to provide these useful public goods, okay? And I think the new slogan um, given by Xi Jinping at the Party Congress, that means uh, Beijing is not aiming for um, hegemony, Beijing is not interested in neo-imperialism, Beijing is interested in building a, a global common destiny, okay? A global common destiny. Uh, well, there is, there is some truth in this, okay? There's some truth in it. I, I, think, um, I, I think to be fair and objective, uh, Beijing has indeed uh, provided um, a number of services uh, to, the, uh, to the global community, uh, even though, of course, uh, um, not without strings attached, okay? <laughs> not without strings attached, because Beijing aspires to be the rule setter, okay? Because as, as, as we know, since World War II, since the, the Bretton Woods system, the Western uh, financial system, uh, the World Bank, the IMF, and so forth, uh, have all been based on uh, the U.S. and Europe-inspired um, uh, uh, regulation. So the, the Chinese are trying to um, to become well. The Chinese are not saying that we will we'll throw out those Western uh, norms, but but they want to be a a, a rule setter, which uh, I think is fair because um, well, China is a, is a huge economy. Okay, it, it, it's. Um, it's a big influence on the world, so I, I think it's fair that you know uh, China be allowed to um, to set some of the rules. Okay, I, I think it's it's, it's natural and, and uh, it's it, it, it's fair. Uh, regarding the um, regarding the Belt and Road, okay, the Belt and Road. Um, I ha I have serious concerns about the Belt and Road because so far the um, the big ticket item. The big ticket items, that means the, the successful infrastructure projects being discussed in the media. For example, the um, 50 billion US dollar um, injection into the Pakistan economy to build this uh, naval port uh, in, in Gwadar, the western, western coast of Pakistan, and also um, a series of high-tech, well, maybe not high-tech, but industrial estate projects in the western uh, province of um, Balochistan, in, in western Pakistan. Uh, this is, I think, the single most expensive project in which the Chinese has invested in. But this project um, does not make a lot of sense. Does not make a lot of sense, except, except as, a, as, a way meet, uh, as, a way, as a way to contain India, okay? As you know, uh, one subset of the Belt and Road consists of this so-called 
string of pearls prosperity. Okay, that means building container ports, uh, sometimes naval uh, dual-use ports in Sri Lanka, in Bangladesh, in uh, in the Seychelles, uh, even in uh, Eastern Africa, with the purpose of containing India. Okay, with the purpose of containing India. So, a, a lot of the investments were motivated by political, uh, foreign policy, and geopolitical considerations, rather than economic considerations. Because, uh, well, you, you don't need to take economics 101 to understand that this 50 billion US dollars uh, invested into Western Pakistan um, is, is a black hole, okay? It, it's a black hole. That is zero possibility of the Chinese recovering any of, of the money, okay? Zero possibility. And even more, the PLA has to send soldiers to protect Chinese technicians, Chinese workers working on the projects in, in Baluchistan. Because Baluchistan is one of the um, unruliest places in Pakistan. Well, Pakistan is a, is, is a failed state, okay? And m most parts of Pakistan are, are unruly. Uh, but Balochistan uh, is the champion of, of this uh, 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 rulelessness condition. Uh, but the Chinese, for some reason, uh, which escapes me, chose to uh, pour 50 billion US dollars in, into, into Balochistan. But anyway, uh, turning to the bigger picture, uh, most of the big ticket items uh, within the Belt and Road Initiative uh, look more like ODA, Overseas Development Aid, than a win-win um, joint venture. Okay, so uh, to 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 um, to simplify matters, I, I think the success of the Belt and Road depends on whether Beijing can attract. Um, Western Europe can attract the U.S., can attract Japan, and uh, relatively developed countries, of course, including Australia, to, um, to, to join in the game, okay, to join in the game, and to ensure that uh, other projects will be um, bona fide uh, commercial uh, joint venture projects, and, and, and not another form of ODAs, okay. Okay, okay. Uh, thank you very much for your... Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.